My wife and I are happy, happy, happy to be here. And uh, we just want to thank you for all the hospitality so far. <clears throat> We've had three miracles so far this conference, not including the two speakers. The first miracle was the first night at Jackson, Tennessee, the entire town was sold out. There was no rooms to be had in the inn. And we finally asked one of the clerks, does anyone have a room? And he said, yes, the residence inn across the way has rooms. Uh, I can guarantee you that. So we drove over there and my wife went in to the uh, counter and I waited in the car and she said, how much? He said $165 for a night stay. And she said, can you give us a discount? And although my wife is not Jewish, she's Southern, but she's not Jewish. Uh, when the bill came the next morning, it was $99. So that's one miracle. Then we had uh, lunch up here below Murfreesboro and we were um, just eating away and having a good time and the waitress did not bring the ticket. And my wife said to me, why is the waitress not bringing the check or the bill? And uh, so she finally asked and she said, uh, how much do we owe you? And she said, uh, your bill has already been paid for by persons unknown. So that was the uh, second miracle that we had. And uh, let me get here and get this set up. Or did we have to have a third miracle to go home with? <laughs> okay, why don't we have a picture? Alan, why don't we have a picture? You have to talk to that thing. Folks back there, I don't know how to I don't have a picture. <laughs> You're a spherical, Dan. Well, when all else fails, I guess to turn the on button on. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Should work. There you go. We're going. Now, please, as a personal favor to me, get to a position in the sanctuary where you can actually read the slide because spend some time preparing these slides so we don't get wandering off on bunny trails. And oh yeah, the third miracle was I have never ever seen as many crock pots as I saw at Tracy's church this morning. <laughs> there must be something about the multiplication of uh, crock pots somewhere in the scriptures. Anyhow, I'm Brother John. I'm uh, from uh, Dover, Arkansas. I'm an ordained Cumberland Presbyterian minister, but I'm in the process of transferring my ordination to become a free will Baptist. The reason is because I just love the Baptist people among other things. They, uh, they, uh, let's see, what was I going to say now? I'm sorry you distracted me. I didn't hear. It's okay. It's okay. It's okay. 
I went before the committee of the Baptist uh, Association and I asked them, uh, will you ordain me? They said, well, we have a standing rule that you have to wait one year before you get ordained once you apply for the ministry. And I said, uh, what if I die before that time? <laughs> and they said, well, we just can't waive the standing rule. And I said, well, if I do die, I said, I just want you to make a cardboard sign on my casket that says he meant well before he left. All right. Let's talk a little bit about the scripture tonight. We're going to try and uh, give you four sermons in the evening along the theme of famous passages that I have heard misconstrued at funerals. That's going to be the theme. In the morning, we're going to do the Olivet Discourse, the three questions that Jesus asked on the three uh, on the Olivet Discourse, and hopefully we'll give you some new information that you've never had before on that particular section of Scripture. I even got excited when I studied it and started uh, talking about it. So, let's talk about what we're doing in terms of the first evening. First evening we're going to be doing with John chapter 3. That's the key passage that we're going to be looking at. <clears throat> you probably don't even need to turn to it because it's so familiar. Uh, unless a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That's very common, very familiar. But what I'm posing to you tonight in a two-part message is that that kind of interpretation ignores the context and the thematic development of John. One of the things that we emphasize over and over again is that you can't preach a text without looking at the context or, or it might be a pretext for saying anything you really want to say. And so whenever you look at a passage of scripture, you have to look at what's preceding it and what's following it and see how the text goes with the flow of the argument of the book. The books are not organized haphazard. They, uh, the writers of the books did not simply sit down and decide to write something like my freshman compositions students do before the computer or before the TV the night before the, the lesson is due. They did not dash it off. They carefully thought about it. They carefully plotted it. They carefully considered what the audience was needing or looking at, and each audience had a purpose in mind, each author had a purpose in mind when he wrote the book. And it's only when you go through the book in continuity, asking the question, why did the author put this passage of scripture or this part of scripture in it, that you can come to a true understanding of the text. So the question tonight in we'll carry on to next night. John chapter 3, regeneration or resurrection? Regeneration or resurrection? Now we have to understand something about John. Jimmy Carter was the first president to introduce himself as a born-again Christian. Later on, Christian convert and former Watergate operative Charles Colson wrote in a book entitled Born Again. Soon the term had worked its way into our culture and everything was born again. And the question that I am asking is not whether there is the truth of being born again or regeneration, not whether the Bible teaches that doctrine, but whether this passage of scripture teaches that doctrine. 
And to look at that, we have to look at 10 things that happen in the Gospel of John. In other words, what I'm asking you to do with me is ask the question, what is John interested in? What is John's obsession? In the early days of my life, or early years of my life, I read a book one time by Lloyd Douglas, I think it was, called Magnificent Obsession. An obsession is something that you can't escape, something that preoccupies your mind daily, weekly, monthly. It's something that you can't avoid. It's something that's compelling in your life. It's an obsession. It's something that uh, grabs hold of you and just won't let go. And I'm here to tell you that I have an obsession about the resurrection. I have an obsession about the resurrection because I think the Christian church as a whole, not pointing at any congregation specifically or any preacher specifically, I think that the Christian church as a whole has lost interest or knowledge or awareness or controlling factor of the personal resurrection of the believer. Now, the reason I said that is I used to have a Baptist deacon that would visit me at the, uh, the uh, Cumberland Presbyterian Church, and he would always bring a bulletin. And he was careful to point out that their light bill was higher than my salary. It used to make me mad. So one time, in fact, he was out raising interest for a new missionary church or mission church that the first church had planted. And he had cornered an ex or apostate Church of Christ individual on the corner of the street in Dangerfield, Texas. And he said to him, uh, let's see, what was his name? Uh, let's just call him Leroy. <laughs> Leroy, he says, you need to get up to this new Baptist church that we're planting up here, only about a mile or two away from the mother church, by the way. He says, we got a hot dog preacher and he runs up and down the aisles and he jumps and shouts and we got this and we got that and we got that and he gave us a laundry list of the, the advantages of attending that new church plant. And Mike, it wasn't Leroy, it was Mike. Mike Gilmore looked at him and he said, well, Jack, what do you Baptists think about drinking beer? And Jack looked at him and he said, well, my goodness, we're against that. And then he turned to me. I would just stand there minding my own business, you understand. He turned to me and he said, well, maybe I ought to go up to John's church. John, what do you Presbyterians think about drinking beer? I said, man, I said, we're against that. I said, we drink only scotch. <laughs> That's why they call us Scotch Presbyterians. He never visited my office again with the church bulletin. <laughs> So, let's talk about the thematic development and John's uh, obsession. John's gospel has fascinated me most of my life, probably because I'm surnamed John. But as I studied it in seminary, as I got out of uh, the baby Greek class, we started studying the gospel of John. And I soon discovered it is very simple Greek language but it's very deep theology. And as I studied it more and more, I found out that John was a literary master. 
He had all kinds of literary devices going on in his gospel, such as double meaning, irony, misunderstanding, foreshadowing, and illusion. He is a master craftsman in the literary art. So the first half of the book deals with belief, uh, writing these things so that you might believe, and the second half of the book deals with life in his name, after believing that you might have life in his name. It's a very interesting book because it's very Jewish. For a while we didn't believe that it was very Jewish, and then someone picked up on the fact that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Jewish feast days, and that's presented in John 1 through 11, and then is also the fulfillment of the vine and the branches imagery that was on the temple in Jerusalem. So he's a very uh, interesting and very literary person. So we're talking about John's preoccupation with the resurrection. The, the Baptist beacon that used to visit me uh, with the church bulletin told me one time, preacher, he said, my, my preacher only has two sermons. And I said, what are they? He said, number one is tithing. He said, number two is resurrection. He says, the only thing is he only uses resurrection on Easter. <laughs> Think about those things, brothers. <laughs> now let's go to John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. And if you have your Bibles, we're going to walk through, so don't, don't settle into a passage. We're not going to exegete each, each passage of Scripture that I mentioned. This is a preview of the wedding feast of the Messiah in the last days. This implies a resurrection. This is also foreshadowed in Isaiah chapter 25, verses 6 through 8, where Jesus says, or where it says, Isaiah says, he will swallow up death forever. So when Mary uh, visits with Jesus at the wedding, when Jesus goes to the wedding, it's a, the seventh day, if you trace the day uh, indicators through John's first section of his gospel, day one, day two, day three, day four, when you get to the Sabbath day, it's the time of the wedding in the scripture. And so we have a preview, a foreshadowing going on about the messianic kingdom with the bride and the groom and the host and the wine of the last days we have a preview and in john chapter 2 there's a preview of the wedding feast but this implies that the characters that have been invited to the feast will be resurrected to participate in it that's number one now in john chapter 1 verse 48 and 49 we have a hidden mention of the resurrection. Let's go to theirs. Let me reach back here and get my Bible. We're going to John chapter 1 verses 48 through 49. John chapter 1 verses 48 through 49. I'm sure you remember the story story is the following day Jesus wanted to go to Galilee but he found Philip and said to him follow me and Philip was from Bethsaida in the city of Andrew and Peter and Philip found Nathanael and said to him we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote Jesus of Nazareth the son of Joseph 
And Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom is no guile. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Now let's look at the details of that passage of Scripture. He identifies Nathanael as a true Israelite in whom there is no deceit. The implication is that he is comparing him with Jacob in whom there was a lot of deceit going on. So a true Israelite, after uh, Jacob had the encounter with the angel who wounded him in the hip uh, so that he had to live a life of dependency, in other words, he had to walk with a cane like I do now, he could not depend on his own power, he had to depend on someone else supporting him, and so he walked with a limp the rest of his life. Why? Because the Lord hit him in the flesh and destroyed his flesh, which was the problem that caused his deceit in the first place. Now, when he got a name changed, then his character changed. When he got a name changed, his character changed. He became a true Israelite, uh, which is the other name for Jacob, in whom there is no deceit. Israel, of course, means prince of God. So this alludes to Micah 4.4 and Zechariah chapter 3, verse 10. The Lord sees Nathanael under the fig tree, which according to Jewish thinking was the place of meditation during the kingdom age. So the Lord looks at Nathanael. Nathanael has quite an outspoken opinion of anyone from Nazareth, but the Lord does not, is not dissuaded by that. He simply says, Behold, a true Israelite in whom there is not there's no deceit, and therefore, because of that fact, there is no deceit in his character. He is qualified to sit in the kingdom of God, and I have foreseen it, and that's why I can say that uh, I saw you under the fig tree. I saw you under the vine and the branches. Okay, that again tells Nathaniel that he is going to be resurrected from the dead and he's going to participate in the messianic or the millennial kingdom. Don't like to use the term millennial anymore. I like to use the term messianic because the kingdom continues on after the thousand years. Now, again, next item is in John chapter 2, verses 18 and 19. John chapter 2 verses 18 and 19. We're very familiar with this, this passage. Jesus says to the audience there, which include the Pharisees, destroy this temple, referring to his body, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jewish leadership misunderstand the reference, thinking that Jesus is talking about the temple of Herod. They are down-to-earth literalists. They think that the only meaning, and I really appreciate Brother Lindell bringing this out this morning, in the scripture you are dealing with the mind of God, and therefore there are multiple levels of meaning. Studying scripture is like peeling an onion. Every time you've got a layer of onion taken off, you've got another layer underneath. So it's not hard to, after studying scripture for a while, to see that it is a multi-layered document that teaches us both to look at the literal, you can't have the figurative without the literal, 
but then to also go deeper in the interpretation of what's going on. So Jesus says, destroy this temple, referring to his body in three days, I'll raise it up. They misunderstand, but the reader understands that Jesus was talking about his own resurrection. That's the third major occurrence of resurrection in the scripture of John. Then we come to the famous encounter with the woman of Samaria. This encounter with the woman of Samaria reveals the resurrection in two places. The first verse is in John chapter 4, verse 13. Jesus says, whoever drinks of the water, I shall give him, which I understand to be a symbol of the Holy Spirit, will never thirst. In Greek, the word is ume, ume, which is the strongest way of saying a negative statement in the Greek language. So, water that I shall give him shall he will absolutely never ever thirst would be a good paraphrase this would only be true if one had a resurrection body so the resurrection again is implied you see what john is doing he's showing us pictures and glimpses and hints and different inferences of the resurrection if we are attuned to the resurrection of the believer or the resurrection of christ if that is your concern the other allusion in the encounter with the Samaritan woman is found in chapter 4, verse 36, in the mention of the harvest. The harvest is a well-known metaphor for the judgment at the end of the age. To be judged, one has to be resurrected. To be judged, one has to be resurrected. Job said, in my flesh I will see God. In my flesh. You see, what? My flesh was just destroyed. That's new flesh, folks. That's resurrected flesh I'm going to use to see God. Now it gets even more complicated. John chapter 5, verse 1. John chapter 5, verse 1. There was an unnamed feast of the Jews. And notice that I inserted the word unnamed there. There was a feast of the Jews. All the other feasts in the Gospel of John are named feasts. This is an unnamed feast. Why is that? I think it means it's an allusion to the Feast of Trumpets, which the Jews call Yom Teruah, the hidden feast. It's a feast that is not known. Neither, no man knows the day or the hour of this feast. Why? Because it's the first day of the seventh month of the calendar year in Judaism. And why is that important? Because the Jews did not go and look at their Timex or their Rolex to get what time it was. They did not set their calendar based on the uh, Naval Observatory. They did not have an automatic watch that set the time for them. So how did they do it? Well, if you were a witness and saw the new moon, you would run to Jerusalem to the high priest, the, the head of the Sanhedrin, and say, I've just seen the new moon. He said, okay, take a seat right there. And then pretty soon the doors would swing open and another guy would come in and say, I've just seen the new moon. Take your seat here. We want to question you about your sighting of the new moon. And only after they had given their testimony, the two witnesses had given testimony, could they then issue the decree, this is the day of the new moon. This is the beginning of the month. 
Everybody in the dispensation or the diaspora, the Jewish scattering outside the land, would have to calibrate their calendar. They'd set up their calendar so that they were celebrating the feast days on the correct day of the month. Okay? That's what they had to do in the lunar calendar. You and I are way beyond that. We're in solar territory. Some pope or some uh, guy in the Catholic Church figured out our calendar designed to confuse us about the importance of the feast days. So this was called the Yom Teruah, the hidden feast, the hidden feast, because no one knew when it was going to happen until these witnesses showed up and the, the bonfires were lit and the, the word went out through the Mediterranean basin. That's why it's on two days to make sure everybody gets the word. That's why Paul said, the dead in Christ shall rise the first day and those who are alive shall be caught up on the second day, perhaps. Okay, other idioms. And I, let me mention a word or two about an idiom. An idiom is something in the language that doesn't mean what it literally says. For example, have you ever heard the expression, it's raining cats and dogs? Everybody's heard that. What does that mean? It means it's, very rain, it's raining very heavily, excessively. And the reason was because in the old days when we all had thatched roofs, the, the cats and the dogs would sleep up in the loft and the rain would come down and be heavy and it'd wash out the floor of the, the loft and the cats and dogs would fall down. That's why we got it raining cats and dogs. Now, having said that, you and I use idioms all day long. In fact, most of my time correcting papers for my freshmen students is getting rid of the idioms that they want to use. Uh, one student will write, well, uh, this character was on board with that. We all know what, what that means. I'm on board with that. I agree with that. But that's an idiom. That's something that doesn't literally mean what it says. Other idioms include the wedding feast of the Messiah, the crowning of the Messiah, the day of resurrection, the day of judgment, and the day of the great awakening blast. So if I'm right in understanding this hidden unnamed feast in John chapter 5 verse 1 as indeed the feast of trumpets or the hidden feast or the day of resurrection, again we have a reference or an implication that John is interested in the resurrection. John 5 verses 1 through 9, the healing pictures the resurrection. The man has been lying in a death-like position for 38 years, the amount of time Israel spent in the wilderness. Jesus asked one of the strangest questions in Scripture, to my understanding. Do you want to get well? And I, I've thought about that over the years, and I realized that, that that's an accurate question, because many people do not want to get well, because being sick has benefits. Being sick has benefits. So he comes and says, do you want to get well? The man answers that he has total inability to get to the water on time. He's not singing the old uh, Rodgers and Hammerstein song, get me to the church on time. He's saying, get me to the water in time. I don't have the ability. Someone needs to help me. And Jesus commands, listen, rise, take up your bed and walk. And here we have a case of Johannine double meaning. 
rise means rise from the bed of sickness that you're on, but it also is a reference or a double meaning for the resurrection. Now that day, John tells us, was the Sabbath. But the weekly Sabbath was a picture of the kingdom Sabbath, which was to be entered by resurrection. Again, we're talking about resurrection. You see where I'm going with this? John makes the meaning of the healing explicit in chapter 5, verse 25. He says, the hour is coming and now is that the dead spiritually will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear shall live. Live what? Live a life pleasing to God. So you have a choice, folks. You can either lie by the pool and moan and groan and complain that you don't have the ability to please God, or you can rise from the dead and walk carrying the bed, carrying the symbol of the law, because now the Spirit enables you to fulfill the law of God. Now Jesus takes the argument one step further in 528. He says, not only can I give you a spiritual resurrection now that enables you to walk in a life pleasing to me and pleasing to God, but there's an hour coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. Now please notice, this is the kingdom, the pre-kingdom resurrection. John has not yet told us that there's going to be a second resurrection at the end of the thousand years. Everything up to the uh, Revelation chapter 21 and 22 leads us to believe that he's talking about the pre-kingdom resurrection. So there's coming an hour in which all who are in the graves, that is all who believe that were in the graves, will hear his voice and come forth. I don't think God has promised the resurrection to anyone who is a non-believer. John 6, 39, 40, and 54 has explicit teaching on the resurrection. You see what God has done? He's given you a miracle at the beginning of the chapter, and now he's going to use that miracle as a teaching vehicle for the doctrinal part of the chapter. John 6, 39, 40, and 54 has explicit teaching of the resurrection. John 6, 39, this is the will of the Father who sent me. Of all he has given me, I should lose nothing but raise him up at the last day. 640, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has or will have eternal life and I will raise him up at the last day. Now, it becomes interesting. Let's turn in our Bibles to chapter 7, verses 45 to 52. John chapter 7, verses 45 to 52. Now, what had happened in the meantime, Jesus continued to offend the priestly or religious authorities of his day, and they finally said, let's send somebody out to arrest him, to put him under arrest, drag him in here, and see what he has to say. So, the men came back, they haven't got him under arrest yet, and they say, no man ever spoke like this man. Implication, it was God speaking, it wasn't man speaking. Not any, and then they respond, the rulers respond and say, not any one of the rulers or of the Pharisees have believed in him, have they? This expects in the Greek language the answer, no. However, the readers know differently. Why? Because Nicodemus, who came to him by night in John chapter 3, says, 
Our law does not condemn a man before it hears him and knows what he is doing, does it? Again, the expected answer is no. And then he, he asked that question in, in sincerity of heart, uh, trying to be obedient to the Mosaic law. After all, he is the teacher of Israel, which means he is the head of his own rabbinical school. He says, our law does not condemn him until we heard from the man. And they answered back, the majority of the Sanhedrin, the ones who hated Jesus, answered back, you also are not from Galilee, are you? And the answer is, the expected answer is no. And then they add to it, oops, 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 oops. Where? Technical difficulties. Let's go back here. Our law does not condemn a man before it hears him and knows what he's doing, does it? The answer is no. You're not from Galilee, are you? No. Search the scriptures and see that a prophet does not arise from Galilee. Look at what word I capitalized again. A double meaning. We think when we read through it, when they're talking about a prophet arising, that he's arising on the stage of history. But here's John again with his double meaning saying, the, uh, a prophet will arise from Galilee. There will be a resurrection. And the people who were supposed to know the Old Testament almost verbatim make a mistake here because 2 Kings 14.25 says, Jonah came from Galilee. Jonah came from Galilee. Now, let's press this a little farther here. Jesus had formerly said in Matthew 12, verse 39, no sign will be given to that generation other than the sign of Jonah, thus the sign of the resurrection. The verb raised in the passages is, a, is an example of double meaning. Do you all know what day this is? Yes. Speak. What day is it? This is a day of atonement, folks. This is the day the high priest went into the Holy of Holies. This is a day that is the most somber day of practicing Judaism that there is. This is the day that they read the book of Jonah in every synagogue as a practicing, uh, uh, practicing Judaism. Why do they read the book of Jonah? I asked my rabbi friend, Messianic rabbi from Washington that I have online, and he says, we don't know. We don't know why we read the book of Jonah. For 2,000 years now, on every day of atonement, every day just like this, when the high priest went into the sanctuary, the Jewish people have been reading the book of Jonah, which teaches the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, and they have missed it. They have not understood it. Why? Because Paul says a veil is laid over them, and that veil is only opened or removed when you come to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you still with me? 
Someone say amen out there. Okay, one more thing. In John 8, there's another example of double meaning. I love John 8 because everybody, uh, scholars tell me that it's not supposed to be in Scripture. The passage is framed in such a way as to question the application of the Mosaic law to the sin of adultery. In the beginning of the passage, the Pharisees show up and say, stone her, and if you follow the structure of the passage, you found far enough, it says stone him, stone Jesus, because he let her out. Now, this is the only passage that Jesus and the Pharisees discussed that was based on scripture. Every other complaint that Jesus had was based on tradition. And he would say, you sacrifice the word of God for the traditions of men. Surely that's not a problem with our modern churches that is being facetious. Jesus does not judge the woman directly or verbally, but draws in the dust with, her, with his finger. Just like my granddaughter. She doesn't challenge anything, she just goes out in the sandbox and draws with her finger. Now the early church fathers could not stand this. They could not stand the fact that Jesus drew with his finger and they didn't know what he said. So some church fathers have inserted the words that Jesus said and said, essentially, he named every one of their sins. That's a possibility, but the answer to the problem is that Jesus was using sign language to communicate biblical truth. In other words, any Jew uh, worthy salt or knowledgeable of the Old Testament would know that the law was written by the finger of God. And Jesus, being there on Mount Sinai with Moses, wrote the law with his finger in the first place, and now he could apply it the way it was supposed to be applied with grace. And therefore, the sign parable of the writing of the dust with his finger alerts the reader the giving of the law which was written with the finger of God. The one who wrote the law in Sinai is now incarnate and able to apply the law. The one who wrote the law in Sinai now extends mercy to the lady. How does he do that? He removes her accusers because the law can only accumulate sin. Therefore, the guy that was the oldest in the group that was bringing the accusation had the most sin. And so he filed out first and on down to the youngest. And he said, woman, where are your accusers? He said, they're not here any more, Lord. He says, neither do I accuse you. He wrote a second time in the dust, the second writing of the law. He says, neither do I accuse you, but go and sin no more. Is that possible? It is. It is under the new covenant. The hardest thing that I will ever teach or believe or have people try to believe in a congregation is that you can live above sin in this life. Galatians 5.24 says, those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh right now. Past perfect tense. Sin is done with. The law is done with. And you don't need the law if you're living above sin. The law incites to sin, it points out sin in the believer's life, but you don't need it 
when you're living a life that's sin free you say I can't live a life that's sin free that's right you can't and Jesus never asked you to live a sinful life or else his ministry as our high priest would be non-effective or non-purposeful God has made provision for each of us to deal with sin in our lives on a regular basis by having Jesus in the sanctuary of heaven dealing with our sins or making propitiation for it, which means to turn away the wrath of God. God always is angry with sin. God is always angry with sin. The, the wrath of God is being revealed. Romans chapter 1 is being revealed. It's presently uh, his... Uh, prerogative and desire or practice to be wrathful with sin and the only reason why you and I stand is because we have a standing in grace according to Romans chapter 5 we have we having been justified by faith we have peace with God and more than that we have a standing in grace so what we have here Jesus answered her accusers in 8-7 only, only after he had raised himself up. Again, the accusers leave because they could not meet the criteria for a judge, which is one who is without sin. Jesus instructs the woman in 8-10 again after he had raised himself up. He could say to the woman, go and sin no more only because of the provision of his resurrection, which set the stage for the coming of the Holy Spirit. In John chapter 10, we have a very familiar passage. John chapter 10, again, is dealing with the resurrection and the teaching about the good shepherd and the sheepfold, which I think is a picture of the kingdom. He says in 10.17, I lay down my life, death on the cross, that I may take it again, resurrection. In John chapter 11, the resurrection of Lazarus prefigures the resurrection of Jesus in John 18 and 19. Jesus makes the audacious claim in John 11:25 that he is the resurrection and the life. Further, it says, the one who believes is the present tense in me, even though he might die, which is a subjunctive, which means maybe yes, maybe no, yet shall he live. To the one who physically dies, Jesus is the resurrection. I am the resurrection is what he declared to us. And as I get older and older, that doctrine became more and more precious to me. That regardless of what happens to me in this life, I am going to be resurrected because Christ personally has guaranteed it. And no other founder of any religion has ever uttered those words. No one has ever said, I am the resurrection. You believe in me. You keep believing in me. I'm going to raise you from the dead. I'm going to give you a glorified body. Your sins are going to be forgiven. You're going to rule and reign with me in the kingdom. And the kingdom is going to be down here. It's not going to be floating around like a ghost in the heavenly places. There's another possibility for a believer. He, he may be alive when Jesus returns. I hope I am alive. I hope I see the, the next eclipse in 2045 that will make me about 100 years old. And uh, I'd love to see that. But be that as it may, uh, as the funeral director told my wife the other day, you know, uh, statistically, John's going to go first. Oh, boy, I didn't want to hear that. 
So Jesus said, whoever is alive, whoever is alive, not whoever lives, whoever is alive, I'm translating the participle as a predicate adjective, and believes in me, shall never, again we have the Greek construction, umei, never, ever, ever, ever die. To these, Jesus becomes not the resurrection, but the life. He gives the life. He resurrects us from the dead. He gives you life. If you're alive when he comes, he's going to clothe you with immortality right there and then, and you won't have to go to the grave. Now, after sur uh, surveying the first 11 chapters of John, it's safe to say that resurrection from the dead is a major concern for our author. It is found in straightforward assertion, double meanings, ironic dialogue, and foreshadowing actions. It is deeply connected to the Old Testament text. The legitimate question that I want to ask you and leave you with, which we'll answer tomorrow night, Lord willing, why does John insert in chapter 3 of his gospel a teaching about a metaphysical or mystical experience called being born again. Is it regeneration or is it resurrection? Amen.